after last Sunday evening's lesson with Brother Bill Dilks. Tonight we continue with the fifth installation of God's Righteous Requirements for Those Who Would Serve as Shepherds in His Son's Church. I would remind us that these requirements that we are going over are mandatory God-given requirements and they're found in 1 Timothy 3 in Titus chapter 1. So where it's been a couple of weeks by way of refreshing our memory, I would like for us to read both of these beginning with Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 where it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and contradict and convict those who contradict. The very similar list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we've been talking about focusing on maybe a little bit more. Hopefully we're tying them all together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Hopefully as I read those words, some of the thoughts that we've had on them over the last few weeks come to mind. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Having covered the first seven requirements found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 during our previous lessons, tonight we're going to continue with our Greek word study of the essential elements found in verse 3. The first one of which is not given to wine. The Greek word is peroinos. And the reason I've got the PowerPoint is for obvious reasons rather than try to spell them all out and everything. If for those of you taking notes or for those of you at home or for those of you that want to listen to these again as we get closer and closer to considering putting forward those men who will serve as elders and lead this congregation in the future, you can go back and, and look at these again. Peroinos, and it means exactly 
as it, what it's translated as, given to wine. That same word or phrase is found in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7 in regard to elders. And these are the only two places, like so many of these terms, that are unique to the qualifications of elders and deacons, or pretty much given only to that. This is another one of those terms. These are the only two places in the entire New Testament where this particular Greek word is found. An elder then must be not given to wine. One resource I'm using says, the prospective bishop must have an exemplary life that is without the negative influence of alcohol and intemperance. Other biblical teaching plainly states that intoxicants are to be altogether avoided even to the point of not looking at them. Proverbs 23, 31 through 33, which we'll go to in a few minutes, except for medicinal purposes, 1 Timothy 5, in verse 23. Now, we can look at this and we say, well, yeah, it makes sense we don't need an elder who's, you know, a drunk. Well, I understand that. But remember, these are qualities. These are the cream of the crop qualities that all of us, you know, our young men, our young women, these are the things that Christians should all be striving for. And, and we'll get to that here in a minute. Brother Kaufman says this, and I thought this was insightful that wine was freely used even by Christians in apostolic times is evident in a statement like this. That's what they drank with their meals. But it should always be remembered that the so-called wines of our times have 10 times the alcoholic percentage of wines in that day. A lot of their stuff was grape juice, basically. And that even in those times, the people who wanted to set the proper example abstained from wine altogether, even in those days, even when it was common to drink wine with a meal. Those who wanted to set the proper example, consider Timothy, who was told to take a little wine for his stomach, 1 Timothy 5.23. Consider him. He had to be told by an apostle, you need to do this because he apparently avoided all of it in setting the proper example. The New American Standard Version, the 1977 and 1995 updated New American Standard, translates this a little bit different. It translates it, not addicted to wine. So brothers, David Roper and Eddie Cloer in those red commentaries we have tell us this. Based on that New American Standard translation, not addicted to wine. In verse three, the first qualification, this one right here, is an example of self-control. The depiction is of those who linger long over wine, Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. It is possible that the requirement is immediately after able or apt to teach because alcohol blunts and blurs our faculty of judgment. In the Old Testament, those engaged in the Lord's work were warned regarding the negative effect of wine and strong drink. In the, this is nothing new. In the Old Testament, all of those who were, were God's leaders were warned 
about intoxicants and not to use them. Leviticus 10, I'll, I'll give you a bunch of references. Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. Isaiah chapter 5, 22 and 23. And Isaiah 28, 6 and 7. Brothers Roper and Clore go on. An important word in the context in the New American Standard Version is addicted, what our New King James Version calls given to. They say an elder is not to be addicted to wine, drugs, his secular job, or anything else in this world. He is to be addicted or totally given to the Lord and his cause only, Galatians 2 and verse 20. If an elder is going to be given to anything, addicted to something, it needs to be to the Lord and his cause only. Now, because it's mentioned more than once in, in several of these different commentators' thoughts, and because these are qualities that we all should be striving for, and, and maybe some of our young people don't realize why, I think it's important that we take just a minute and turn to that one passage in Proverbs 23. Would you please? Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Just want to make sure everybody was there, heard pages. Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who's got all these problems? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. In other words, it's not just the, you know, grape juice, if you will. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like the one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, they have struck me, but I wasn't hurt. They've beaten me, but I didn't feel it. What then? Shall I awake that I may have another drink? It's like a man sleeping at the top of a mast. Some of the crazy things that people do while they're under the influence. And so this is not just for elders. This is, again, something for all of us to be aware of and to strive not to be. But when we talk about the qualifications of an elder, the first qualification is blameless. And so an elder must be one who strives not to have, as we talked about when we talked about that word, one who strives to have no legitimate charge brought against him. And I'll just tell you, and I think I've told you before, they must go so far to avoid disappearance of, of evil or wrongdoing I've been to weddings before of people who are not Christians, and they've had an open bar. And <clears throat> you know what I have for a drink when we have an open bar? Coffee. 
You should see some of the looks when you go up and say, you got any coffee? <laughs> you know why? Nobody's going to mistake that for rum and coke. Nobody's going to mistake that for an alcoholic drink. The steam coming out of it, it's black and it's in a cup as opposed to in a glass with ice in it. The whole idea here is to avoid, is to be blameless, to be innocent. So yes, we should avoid it and do all we can to avoid even the appearance of it. An elder must be one not given to wine nor even the appearance thereof. Next one. A bishop must be not violent. Common sense. Dealing with people, you cannot be violent, cannot be aggressive, cannot be quick-tempered. The Greek word is plektes. It means a bruiser, one who is ready for a blow, a pugnacious, contentious, quarrelsome person. One commentator, West, said, one who goes around with a chip on his shoulder. It is a person who is looking for a fight. True story. I was not at this men's meeting, but I heard about it in one of the former congregations where I served as a preacher. Apparently, before I got there, they had had some contentious men's meetings. They didn't have elders at the time. It got to the point where, in a men's meeting, two brothers in Christ, one of them says to the other one, you want to take this discussion outside? He was looking for a fight. Two brothers in Christ, you want to take this outside? We'll settle it the way they settle it in the world. We'll just punch the daylights out of it. Yeah, that's brilliant. But this is the idea, and that's what it reminded me of. And another thing that reminded me of something is, is West's comments, one who goes around with a chip on his shoulder. As I thought about that, I thought, okay, here's something else to consider. What about the man who believes he's qualified to be an elder? And, and maybe, maybe he is, maybe he's totally qualified to be an elder, pretty much. And a congregation, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, overlooks him or doesn't see it the same way. So they don't put forward his name to become an elder. If he then goes around with a chip on his shoulder, angry, bitter, upset, because nobody else saw that he was the man that he saw that he was, guess what he did? He proved them right in not putting his name forward because he's being contentious and selfish. The next phrase, a bishop must be not greedy for money. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. Some versions do not contain this exact phrase right here the way the New King James Version does. Okay? Doesn't matter though because Titus 1 and verse 7 does contain the phrase and it is a requirement of an elder that he not be greedy for money. So it is still a requirement even though 1 Timothy 3, some versions do not include it right there exactly. <coughs> not greedy for money. It's very similar to the phrase at the bottom of this verse, not covetous. So okay, let's talk about Titus 1.7 then, where the phrase does occur in pretty much every version I know of. And Ashorticus? I'm not sure. Ashorticus. It means eager for base gain or greedy for money. Now, 
is a Greek word that only occurs twice in the entire New Testament. Once, in, depending on whether or not it's here in your version. If it's here in your version, then it occurs three times. But it occurs in Titus 1.7 in regard to elders. And in 1 Timothy 3.8 regarding deacons. Look down for just a minute, 1 Timothy 3.8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. So Titus tells us for sure that it has to do with elders. We see it here in some versions in Timothy. We see it insofar as deacons are concerned. And I think one of the reasons, and well, I'll just read what I've got here. It appears that certain elders were financially supported in their work. If we were to turn and read 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it talks about elders being worthy of their wages. So some elders obviously were supported in their work, again, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And it appears that the churches were not stingy in their support. Hence, the temptation may be by some to serve as an elder in order to make money off of it. However, the point here is that money must not serve as the motivation. Brothers Roper and Clower said this. <coughs> Later in 1 Timothy, we find these familiar words penned by Paul. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Since it is scriptural for an elder to be paid for his labor, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, this qualification could be saying, do not become an elder just so you will receive a salary. Probably the phrase has a broader meaning. An elder needs to have his priorities straight. Money is not his primary concern. Whether in his home, in the congregation, or in the community, he is to be more concerned about people. Remember what Peter wrote about this very same thing? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. Peter wrote, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. The very similar admonition at the end of this verse where it says, not covetous. That's a phrase that's translated in the New American Standard Version as one who is free from the love of money. The word is a philo, whoops, where am I here? I thought I hit that, let's try it again. There we go. A philo giros, not loving money. It's found only one other place, the New Testament. And the other place it's found refers to all of us. It's in Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So again, we see this is something for all of us, but for those who are the cream of the crop in Christianity, as it were, for those who would be our elders, it is a requirement as well. The next God-required quality or characteristic that a man must possess in order to be seen as being qualified to be an elder must be gentle. The word gentle here, the word that's translated as gentle, 
is epiechus, and it means equitable, fair. Don't you want a fair man as an elder? Don't you want one who's willing to listen and is fair? One who is mild and gentle as opposed to harsh? Now, You wait just a minute. Did I make a mistake there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, that should have been blacked out on the bottom. Only at the time used Hebrews 13.5. That went with the one before it, not loving money. That shouldn't be on this slide about mild and gentle. Sorry about that. I knew no matter how many times I went over that PowerPoint with all these different technical terms that I was going to mess something up. So disregard the 13.5 here. That was on the previous one, and I used the same frame. Some days. For those versions... If you have one of those Bible versions that does not contain the phrase, not greedy for money in verse three, like the New King James does, if yours does not contain that phrase, not greedy for money, as we talked about earlier, then this verse goes right from the idea of not being violent to instead being gentle. It is a contrast, for example, the English Standard Version says in this verse, not violent, but gentle. See the contrast? Not violent. He's not this way, but he's this way. Not violent, but gentle. Because the English Standard Version is one of those versions that doesn't have that, that love of money one stuck in there. Several others follow Bauer's lexicon by saying one who is not a bully, but gentle. There are several versions that say that. And you know, such a quality of character is a must in dealing with people in potentially explosive situations. Elders, elders, never hand, elders never handle an explosive personality conflict, do they? Well, you got people, you have personality conflicts. And so he must be one who is fair, equitable. One who is mild and gentle in handling even explosive situations. Brothers Roper and Clower would tell us this Greek word translated gentle can mean yielding, kind, courteous, tolerant. You know, as I read those words from Brothers Roper and Clower, brought a couple of verses to mind. Yielding, kind, courteous, tolerant. Brought to mind James 3, verses 13 and 17. Again, which all of us must aspire to and which say, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Doesn't that sound like what elders need to be in dealing with people? Brothers Roper and Clore, I love this line. The word gentleman has gone out of fashion. We don't hear that too much anymore. But it is a good term to apply to an elder. He is to be a gentle man. <clears throat> Brings us to our next phrase. A bishop must be not quarrelsome, or he must be peaceable. And the word here, is amachos. Remind you of anything? <laughs> amachos. 
Aha, uh -huh. think about that. The word literally means no fighter. He must be no fighter. Now, I had to take some time because of the obviousness of, of what we get from this word. Amachos is a compound word. It is made up from two other words. The first word it is made up from is mache, M-A-C-H-E. That word, I, I want to take a minute to look at that word. That word is defined as a fight or combat of those in arms, a battle, of persons at variance, disputants, strife, contention, a quarrel. I'll show you four places that that one Greek word of the two is actually used, that mache. 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts, that's mache, conflicts on every side. 2 Timothy 2.23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. That's mache. Mache means conflicts and quarrels. Titus 3.9, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes, mache. And finally, James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts, mache, amongst you? That's what mache or machos means. But this, that's only part of the word. Notice what's in front of that? The letter A. We should be real familiar with this by now. When you stick the letter A in front of something, what does it mean? We should be real familiar with this, with symptomatic and asymptomatic. <laughs> if a person is symptomatic, they have symptoms. But if they are asymptomatic, they don't have symptoms. That's what it means. It negates what follows it. Same thing here. The word mache or machos means conflicts, quarrels, disputes, conflicts. But when you stick the A in front of it, it's like the difference between symptomatic and asymptomatic. It's machos and Amashos or Amashos, not a fighter, not a quarreler, not a disputer. Brothers Roper and Clore say it depicts one who is not contentious. An elder should be ready to contend for the truth, but he should not be contentious. That goes for all of us. He cannot always insist on his own way in the eldership or in the congregation. Peter says he cannot lord it over. Okay, this brings us to what is one of the most perhaps contested requirements of them all. One that there's probably a lot more confusion out there than a lot of the rest of them. And that is when it comes to any potential elders, children. You can find a lot of different thoughts and opinions on this, but the word of God still means exactly what it's always meant. It still means what it meant when it was written. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 35, scripture cannot be broken. That means scripture cannot be used to contradict itself. So when we put it all together and we really study it out word for word, we'll get a much better, clearer picture here. And we must also remember not to go beyond what is written, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. It's real easy to hear all these different opinions and to form our own opinion, but it's not really what the Bible says. I mean, people in the religious world do that all the time about a lot of different things. 
And so we need to go back to the book, back to the basics, back to the black and white, throw out maybe some of the things that we've heard, unless we can prove them, book, chapter, and verse, and simply give a listen to some of these scriptural points. My, I'll leave it at that. As Brother James Burton Kaufman said, the overstressing of the children requirement has reduced the process of choosing elders in some churches to a mere consensus of the children. So, we're going to take a look at one verse at a time, and there are verses in Titus that say something different than Timothy, but where we're in Timothy, we're going to start in Timothy. We're going to take a look one verse at a time at what the word actually says and does not say, and seek to build our understanding one step at a time. And I hope when we get done, everybody will have a better understanding. 1 Timothy 3, in verse 4, says, a bishop must be, read it straight out of your own Bible, a bishop must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. One who rules his own house well. I want to stop right there. Just think about it. One who rules his own house well. The first obvious thing that we will note here is that what he's about to say in this text specifically has to do with while the children are still in the home. That's undeniable context there, this one verse. This verse is talking about while the children are still in the home, his household, they're under his roof. Again, I'll rely on the wisdom of men that are a lot wiser than I am in the scriptures. Brothers Roper and Clower. How can we know if a man manages his own household well? One way is to look at his relationship with his wife. Does he respect and care for her? Does she respect him as the head of the home? The way specified in this text is to look at his children. Are they in submission or under control with all dignity or reverence? The word submission, under control in some versions, the word submission is the same word for submission in 1 Timothy 2.11, where it talks about how a woman is to learn in quietness and, and with submission. An elder's children should not be out of control. They should be well behaved. Again, Brothers Roper and Clore continuing. They are to be under control with all dignity or reverence. Dignity is from a word which refers to an appropriate response to one who is worthy of respect. It probably refers to the respect children are to have for their father. Their submission should not be a grumbling obedience out of fear of punishment, but should be an expression of general respect for their father. Denny Petrillo summarized this quality with these words. The father's firmness 
makes the children obey. His wisdom makes it natural to obey. And his love makes it pleasurable for them to obey. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's showing reverence and respect to the father, to the head of the household, as the head of the household, because of the example he sets. Makes perfect sense when you put it all together. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said, the bishop must be one who is head of his own household. Have you ever known somebody? <clears throat> don't raise your hands, don't shake your heads, don't do anything, just think about it. Have you ever known family, couple, where it was obvious the man was not the head of the house? His wife was. There was no doubt in anybody's mind, probably including his. What can happen if a man is not respected as the head of his household and he's put in as an elder is that his wife can wind up running the congregation through her husband. I've seen that at least once. And I won't go any further than that. Brother Ritchie continues. Both his wife and children respect his headship. When Paul says is this when Paul says this is to be done with all gravity or reverence, as it says in the New King James, he refers to the bishop or elder himself, especially his attitude as he rules his own family. He must exercise authority, but it must be done with dignity and honor. He must fill the role of head of his house in such a way that his wife and children will not chafe under his headship, but will find following his lead to be both practical and pleasurable. He is a man whom his wife and kids understand has their best interest in taking them to heaven at heart. They understand that, and so they are willing to respect him because he's earned that respect. He's a man who loves God, he loves the church, he loves his family, and he wants to see all of them go to heaven, and because they know that, they respect him for it. It's not a grudging thing. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a man having his children in submission with all reverence. And of course the question always comes up relative to the second part of this verse is can a man with only one child serve as an elder? Because it says children. This is a big one. People that know got to have more than one child else he's not qualified, because it says children. I want to give you some key things to think about. I will support it biblically back and forth and up and down. According to Strong's Greek lexicon, the word translated children, having his children in submission with all reverence, that Greek word is technon, T-E-K-N-O-N. And that word literally means offspring. Look it up. That's why I put it up here. Look it up at home. Go back this week. Look it up. Technon means offspring. Children or child. Let that turn. How many of you have been driving home after dark at night and almost hit a deer? Not too long ago, we had one jump out in front of us. Real, matter of fact, real recent. You know, the word deer is a strange word. 
The word dear is both singular and plural. There goes a deer, there goes 30 deer. We don't say there goes 30 deers, do we? Moose is the same way. I know you don't have moose down here, but work with me anyway. Moose is the same way. Look at that moose. Look at those five moose. They're not five mooses. It's one of those words that is exactly the same in both the singular and the plural. The singular is included in the plural. You know, the word offspring is like that. Think, think about it. The word technon, the word offspring itself. When we talk about a family's offspring, if, we're, if they only have one child, do they have offspring? If they have 25 kids, do they have offspring? Offspring is one of those singular slash plural exactly the same words. We don't say if they got three kids, hey, they got three offsprings. And if this word were only translated offspring more often, we'd have no problem with it. That is exactly what the word means. <clears throat> Brother Kaufman says, regarding the question of whether a man with only one child could be appointed, Zur has this illuminating comment. The captain of a sinking ship orders that women with children should enter the lifeboats first. This does not mean that women with only one child would be denied entrance. Is that true? Women with children into the lifeboats. If a woman's only got one child, sorry lady, you can't get in. No. The fact is that a singular child is included in the plural children. Sarah remarked in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 7 in the New King James Version, Sarah remarked, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son. Do you see how the singular is included in the plural? Who would have said that I would have borne him children? And here I have done it, I've borne him a son. Interchangeable. It is not the number of children, but their behavior that is in view here. Paul would state in the very next verse that a man unable to control his own household slash offspring should not be entrusted with the government of the church. Now, before I presented this to you, I wanted to, I wanted to nail this down. If this is the way it is, I wanted to, to find other examples to make absolutely sure. I don't want to misteach anybody anything at any point in time. I don't. As teachers, we shall be held to a stricter judgment, James 3.1. I want it right. So I did a lot of research. <clears throat> As most of you already know, Strong's Greek lexicon assigns a number every Greek and Hebrew word, thousands of them. So that when you go to certain websites and you look certain words up, there will be a number after every word. And you can tap on it and you can see what the actual Greek word is that is used there. The following verses are from the New American Standard Version. Watch this closely. Children, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, is technon in the Greek as we have mentioned. The number that Strong's assigns to it is 5,043. You can look this up. So when you look it up on a, on a Strong's lexicon, Matthew 10:21 says, brother, that little G80 means Greek word 80. If we were in the Old Testament, it would have an H for Hebrew word. But see how every word has got a number after it? It'll take you to that single Greek word. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. His child is technon, singular, Greek 
5,043. And children greet 5,043 will rise up. Do you see how the word means both? It means singular, it means plural. In the same verse, technon can be singular or plural because it's the same word. Don't miss that. Matthew 21 and verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two technon, and he came to the first and said, technon, son, child. He had two sons, plural, children. But he comes to one of them and says child or son. Where technon is both, can be either. Mark 13 and verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, very similar to Matthew 10, 21 and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Both child and children are technon. There's no different word, it's the exact same word. Now this next slide is the last one, and it's gonna look a little confusing, but I'm gonna spend the rest of what little time I got left explaining it, and then we'll close. Don't let all of that confuse you. We're gonna take them one at a time. I just want you to see this continued use of this word. It can be either or. In Luke 2.48, remember when Jesus was 12 and stayed at the temple, it says, when they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? When Mary used the word son, she used technon, Greek 5043. But Luke, in the very next chapter, uses technon in the plural. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to ourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you these I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children, technon, to Abraham. And again, singular or plural, same exact word. A couple of other places where we would notice this is this. You all know what Ephesians 6.1 says, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, Ephesians 6.1 is plural. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Does this mean that if a... Uh, Family only has one child, that child doesn't have to obey their parents? No, the singular is included in the plural. Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Does that mean if he only has one child, it's okay to provoke him and not bring him up in the Lord? No, the singular is included in the plural. The word used there is technon. In this very epistle, in 1 Timothy 1, 2, and 1, 18, he calls Timothy his son, technon. In 2 Timothy 1, 2, and 2, 1, he calls Timothy his son. In Titus 1, 4, he calls Titus his son. They're all singular. They're all technon. It's all the same exact word that Paul uses in these same epistles that is also translated children when it comes to elders in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and Titus 1, 6. Deacons, 1 Timothy 3, 12. And worthy widows, 1 Timothy 5, 4. Been a lot easier if it had just said that he must keep his offspring under control with all reverence. But the word can mean either. One final note to show you that from the book of 1 Timothy itself. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. Look at verses 4 through 8. Another place that technon is used. It's used in the plural, it's translated children, but then it shows that it can be only one, even though it says plural. Watch this. 
1 Timothy 5 and verse 4, if any widow has children or grandchildren, notice that's plural, technon, children, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow, left alone, trusts in God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Okay? And these things command that they may be blameless. He's talking about the widow herself, and if she has technon, offspring, children, plural, in this sense, that they are to take care of their grandparent. Uh, they are take, to take care of the widow. <coughs> Look at verse 8. But if any one, now it's singular. This is not the word technon, but now it's talking about the, the child who is to take care of the widow. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Originally he's talked about technon children, and now he applies it to one single. The qualifications regarding how a potential elder candidate handles his household and children isn't so much about quantity as it is quality. And the next verse, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5, tells us why. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, once again, we see it's while his kids are in his house in this particular text, how will he take care of the church of God? I hope this clarifies for us that if a man has one offspring as opposed to ten offspring, that he still has offspring. It's about quantity, not quality. It's about quality, not quantity. I'm sorry. So next week we'll pick up with the word of God and what it says in Titus 1.6 about this. But for tonight, if there's anybody here who's not a child of the Heavenly Father, we would love to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you'd like the prayers of the church to be more faithful or you're struggling with something we can help you with, if you're here tonight, please come to the front in just a moment as we stand and sing. But if you're at home, get in touch with us. Send us an email. Send us something. Let us know. We're here for you even though we can't be together these days. If you have a need, we make it known right now as we stand and sing.